Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. Pastor James is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. Good night, everyone. It's good to have all of you here. I'm excited you made it. Even though you're studying Job, you're still here. You're still alive. Because the study of Job won't make bad things happen, but it'll sure help you through any challenges of life. And so we've been talking about the question of the ages. That's what it's all about, the book of Job. Why? Why would this happen? And we're talking about when tragedy strikes, how should we respond? And so I'd asked you if you wanted, to, if you had a question of why, to write those down on the card in front of you and drop it in the offering boxes on the way. A few of you have done that. Thank you for that. Some incredible questions. Uh, in fact, one of them we're going to talk about tonight. Someone wrote this question. And keep it anonymous because I don't want to mention your name or, you know, in any way connect it to you. Uh, but if you have a question that you'd like to pose, not just to me, but to this audience, uh, I would invite you to do that. And no question is, is stupid or the wrong question. It's as long as it's sincere. It's just from the Lord to you. I mean, you know, God doesn't destroy us for asking questions. You know, he understands we're children. He's the father and the adults know better. And so that sometimes the only way, we, you know, we we're, can be like kids and say, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Uh, but even those deeper questions like this one, this was a good question. Does God punish us for our sins by causing the death of a loved one, such as losing a parent? What are your thoughts on that? Does God punish us for our sins by causing the death of someone we love? No. A loving God would not do that, okay? And that's, you're exactly right. What are some other thoughts? What do you think? Yes. Maybe if they're in pain or suffering, okay. What are, what are some other thoughts? Do, how do, is it possible that our sin could cause someone else to die? Maybe. If, if our recklessness caused an accident and it could bring in a death to a family member in the car? So there, maybe there, it's not as cut and dry as we thought. Any other input? Not as punishment. Not as punishment, however. Okay, yeah, because, well, we'll get into that in just a second. Some other thoughts. I saw a hand over here. Anybody? Oh, okay, no. One of those false hands. Yes. Yeah, and, and what happens, and the reason that we, it's important that we ask these questions, because these are the questions the world is asking and claiming so they don't have to believe in God. Because, yeah. you, know, if, if, you know, why would God do something like that? And would God punish a family member for our sin? So I, I, I want us to be intellectually honest in here and to be sincere and if we've got questions, let's not just pass by them or give them pat answers. Let's go to the word. Let's find, because that's where the answers are. And sometimes we're not going to be satisfied with what we learn. Because God is God and we are not. And even, and, and we're going to see this as we study Job, 
Job asked all these questions of God. Why would you do this? He made these demands. And at the end, God did not answer one of his questions. In fact, God just said, let me ask you a few questions. And so, uh, and so we, can't, we won't always get the answers on this side of, of, of uh, heaven. But this is how people in the world use their excuses to not believe in God. Because why would a loving God allow this? And, the, and yet the reality is we, we, we have this small perspective of the world. God sees the whole thing. And not just now, but throughout history, the timing. You know, God may have allowed something 100 years ago to bring glory to him 100 years later. And we don't see that span. We just see a tragedy in the middle of that. And I remember one time uh, we had a lady in our church that got saved. I mean, she got radically saved. I I think I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. And her name was Jamie. And so it was just so awesome to see her worship. I love baby Christians, man. They're, they're on fire for God. Us old fogies, we need to see some baby Christians around every now and then to remember where the fire was and where our first love was. And she was like that. And everybody she encountered, they, she just lit them up because of her joy of the Lord. Well, she got diagnosed for a recurrence of colon cancer. And it was, it was a shock to all of us. The church totally loved Jamie. And so we started a 24-hour prayer chain. Someone was praying for Jamie every hour of the day. Two in the morning, people were signing up for three in the morning to pray a half an hour for Jamie. We had everything going on, and she died. And I was devastated. I had never gone out on a limb like this as a pastor before. And, and I didn't guarantee healing, but we were sure asking for it. We, had all, we didn't have a lack of faith. It wasn't for lack of trying We had done everything we knew how to do. And one of the reasons is that Jamie's ex-husband was not a Christian, and they had a boy together. And And I just felt like, God, you have to heal Jamie so that this boy can grow up in a Christian home. You have to. And so when it didn't happen, I was I was devastated. I thought, well, what's gonna happen? Well, years later, I came back to that same community and went to an eighth grade graduation, and there was Jamie's son at a Christian school. His father had come to Christ and, and was on, the, on fire for the Lord, and I was like, well, now it makes sense, you know. <laughs> now I understand, and I almost had to repent to the Lord because I was so upset by that because I said, you know, Jamie's son needs to be raised in a Christian household. Well, guess what? He was. It just wasn't Jamie, but it was her ex-husband. And so God was glorified in a whole different way. He saved this man, and to, to my knowledge, he is still serving the Lord today. And so we don't always understand what God is doing. We just see the tragedy here and now. So based on that question, we go to the Word. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy 4, 24, 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So the Bible teaches that, you know, in in terms of how Israel was to punish, you didn't punish the whole family for the sin of one person. Each each one was responsible for their own sin. Deuteronomy 24, 16. And then Ezekiel 18, 20 mirrors this. The, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. 
The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be charged against him. So again, God is saying that the child should not die for the parent's sin and vice versa. However, <laughs> and this is why we need the totality of Scripture. See, this is you hear me talk about context. You've got to read Scripture in context. Scripture needs to interpret Scripture because people can take one verse and create a whole doctrine about it and it can be incomplete or inaccurate or even heretical. And so... Uh, Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven, ten commandments, above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. And so God is saying that he punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third or fourth generation. That seems like a contradiction on the surface. And that's exactly what it is. And, and here's how we need to finish reading it. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. The natural progression of sin will carry on to generation to generation. We call it a generational curse. And I do believe in those things. And I do, but I also believe they can be broken. At any stage, whether it's the second generation or the third generation, in the name of Jesus Christ, all curses are broken. And so, but I will tell you, sin that is not confessed or repented of will continue through the generations. It's why children of alcoholics become alcoholics. That curse will continue on unless it's stopped by the power of God. But what God does is set limits. See, the natural progression is God will bless to a thousand generations of those who love me. But for those who do not love me, I'm only going to allow it to go to the third or fourth generation. It would go on forever if God wouldn't step in. So even here, we see the mercy of God. That sin unchecked will continue to multiple generations, but God stops it after the third or fourth, unless someone breaks it before then in the name of Jesus. And so as a general rule, a child is not punished for the sins of the parents by God, by death, and, and vice versa. And the reason it's important for us to understand that because if you've ever lost a child or lost a parent, you can have that condemnation come upon you and it's not from the Lord. And you may feel that it's my fault they died. And it's not necessarily the case. And so we, we just need to really be balanced in that. And especially, this is why we're studying Job because Job asks the hard questions that we have our, ourselves. And so when tragedy strikes, how should we respond? We've seen these tragedies that have happened to Job, and now we'll witness how he reacts. And as we do, as we look at Job's reaction, put yourself in his place. How would you respond? And you can learn how you would respond by how you've responded in the past. Usually an in, uh, past behavior is a good indicator of present behavior and future behavior. But again unless we stop it in the name of Jesus. And so, you know, uh, I've, I've often said that I'm the female in my marriage. You know, I, I'm more emotional, and, and I probably respond more panicky, you know, and I'm just being honest, y'all. And Jolene is very stable. She's very strong. She doesn't react quickly or out of control. So we hopefully balance each other. <laughs> 
but I, I realized I don't always want to react like I have in the past. And so our study of Job is going to help us respond properly when hardship comes. Not, not just tragedy, but when trials come in our life. How should we respond? And so we see Job's first response to tragedy was he grieves. And we learned that by Job tearing his robe and shaving his head, that was a symptom of grief. Others could see his grief. And that was the sign of the day that someone was in mourning, is by, by their torn clothes. Uh, the other day I was wearing some holy jeans. Well, it doesn't mean I was grieving. I was just trying to be stylish at 58. You know, I still got it. No, I don't. But anyway, so if they tore their clothes and put ash on their head and dust on their head, and it would, you would know that person is going through terrible sorrow. And God has given us grief as a way to heal. But you have to walk through the whole cycles of grief. And we talked about, can you grieve too long? And, and certainly we can grieve too short as well. But when we grieve, we should grieve without losing hope. We're Christians. This, is, this life is not all there is. Someday, Jamie's going to see her son and, and her ex-husband in heaven. And, you know, there's going to be a glorious reunion. And so, yes, we grieve, but not like the rest of the world who thinks that's it. Can you imagine living with that fatalism? That if you don't believe in, in God or believe in heaven, that this life is all there is? It, it, and, it, and it just, it, it's actually, it creates despair if there's no heaven or, and, and yet at the same time, there is a hell as well. And so let's put ourselves in Job's shoes tonight and see if we can react like he did because he, he's amazing. It's amazing how this man responded. So let's look at our text again. Job 1.20. At this, Job got up and tore his clothes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job's first reaction is to grieve. That's normal. That's proper. That's cathartic. It's healing. Job's second response is amazing. Number two, Job worships. Despite his blameless life, and regardless of his sacrifices, remember he made sacrifices for his children. He was worried about their salvation. And even with all his good deeds, Job still loses everything. And remember, that's the whole point of this culture. They believed if you were good in all you did, you wouldn't lose anything. But Job was the most blameless man on the earth, and yet he lost everything. And this is why Job's friends tried to blame it on him. Because deep down they knew if it can happen to Job, then it can happen to us. And so we've got to, sometimes people hold on to their theology out of self-preservation. Not because it's biblical, but because they don't want to go there. And Job's friends didn't want to go there. Because if, because remember, this was the theology, the philosophy of the day. Good things happen to good people. And if bad, something bad's happened to you, it's because you're bad. And that's how people lived, and that's how people believed, not only then, but even today. But the reality is, the rain falls. Can you believe we had rain last night? I, 
so I told my sister, it never rains in the summer. And then I, I'm woken up by lightning and thunder and rain. And so I, I totally lied. But anyway, not on purpose. But the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Part of it is just life. Bad things happen to everybody. But the difference with a believer in Jesus is there's purpose. There's reason behind it. And God can turn bad things into good things. And so he had done everything right but everything went wrong. Can you imagine that? He had worked hard at it, sacrificing for his children, leading a blameless life. I mean, this man worked hard at it, and yet it didn't work. It didn't seem to matter. And sometimes we're in the same vein. God, I've been good lately. <laughs> How about a little payback? Or, or God, why is this happening in my life? You know, I've been reading the Bible Every now and then, this is not fair, God. And that's the big thing is we're looking for fairness. And, and what's a danger is not only are we looking for fairness, we compare with other people. And I, God, I know I'm better than them. And by saying that, you just proved you're not. But uh, God, it, it, you know, if I know I'm better than them, why do they get blessed? And I struggle the whole time. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we'll explore. And so here's Job. He had done everything right. He, he hadn't missed anything. And, what, and yet he loses everything. And what is his response? Letter A, Job falls down and worships God. He lost his 10 children. He lost his entire wealth. And his, and his second response is to worship. Could you do that? Could, could that be your response in that kind of tragedy? You know, if, if we can't respond properly in the small things, how will we respond in the big things? Does someone have a comment? No matter what. After a while, you could worship. That's an honest answer. Thank you. He, you're right. There was a moment of grief, and, and we don't know how long that went because... Many times they would grieve for a number of days, sometimes 40 days they would grieve, and it just depend on the circumstances. But, and so maybe he grieved for several days, but we do know, it, it's, the text seems to indicate that after he tore his clothes, he immediately fell to his knees. And so it may have been soon after the tragedy. Now, now remember this, Satan had said, if you take away his, his possessions, he will curse you to your faith, face. So that's what Satan had said. However, Job does just the opposite. He, Satan had said, he'll curse you to your face. But Job, instead of cursing God, worships God. Can you imagine? I love how that had to humiliate Satan. I mean, he had to just have total egg all over his face because he was telling God, yeah, you take away his possessions and he'll curse you. And then all is gone and, and there's Job on the earth worshiping. I imagine God just looked over at the devil and just, you know, because we're going to see that interaction in the next tragedy. Now, our greatest way to nullify the plans of Satan is to worship God. Satan has plans for you. God has plans for you, but so does Satan. But the way we nullify those plans, they won't come to total fruition, is if we worship. This is our weapon. 
against Satan's plans, his evil schemes, the Bible says. And our way to foil those plans is to worship. Satan had a plan for Job, and he thought for sure he was going to win. And for Job to worship, that was not what Satan was expecting. And yet that's how he was able to overcome Satan. Now let's look at the word worship. Because there's several words for worship. Several words for praise. Again, we're, we're kind of limited in the English language, Hebrew and Greek. There's, there's actually five words for love in the Greek language. Only three of them are in the, in the Bible. Three different words. And so the English falls a little short. So this is shakah, is the Hebrew word for worship, one of the Hebrew words for worship. It, it means to bow down. So when it says he fell down and worshiped, that's really one phrase. It means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to crouch, to fall down, to humbly beseech, to do reverence, to, to worship. It really had the idea in the culture of bowing down to a king or a queen. It was to, to pay veneration, but in this case, it's to God, the king of kings. And so that's what that word means. This is what Job did. He, he fell down and worshiped. The same word is found in Exodus 4:29 through 31. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, this is when, this is when um, Moses first came to tell him, I'm going to deliver you from slavery. They were still in slavery. But when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, guess what? They bowed down and worshipped. Same Hebrew word. And so the Israelites, when they realized God cares, because they were in slavery for 400 years. And finally, it was time. And what was their response? They fell down and worshiped. There's a time for us to get on our face before God and give him glory and worship him. Not care what anybody else thinks. Because sometimes, you know, it's one thing to stand and raise our hands and worship, and that's absolutely biblical. But there's other times we need to get on our face before God and just bow down and worship him. And this is what Job did. It wasn't, this, this was sincere worship from the gut that Job did. It wasn't plastic, it was genuine. And so let her see, worship may seem like the most unnatural, insincere, and unrealistic response to a tragedy, but it is the best response. We don't always feel like worshiping, do we? We don't always feel like praising God. That's why it's called a sacrifice of praise. You, you know, we don't always feel like raising our hands or singing the worship songs, but I'm here to tell you that if you will enter into worship, if you will worship when you don't feel like it, if you will praise and raise your hands when you feel the complete opposite, then this will be the best response to any tragedy or trial or tribulation you have is to worship. Something bad happened today? Go worship God. Go get on your face before God and worship him. And I'm telling you, even if you don't feel like it, it feels unnatural, it feels phony. You, you know, we have to rise above our emotions because our emotions are supposed to serve us, not the other way around. 
They're terrible taskmasters if they're your ruler. But emotions are to serve us. And so sometimes we have to rise above our emotions and do what God's told us to do. The next time you experience a hardship, trial, or disappointment, I challenge you, try it. You got bad news today? Go worship God when you get home. Try it. It, And again, you won't feel like it. You won't want to do it, especially if it's a tragedy or loss. But I'm telling you, worship is always the best response to hard times, to difficult times. It's always the best response. And sometimes we really need to get on our faces and bow down before the Lord and worship from the gut. I mean, from the deepest part of your soul. The, I believe it, it was in Lamentations where it says, I pour out my heart like water. That's how we need to pour out our worship to the Lord, like water. And so, it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. And I firmly believe, because I know when, when I do this, and I don't always do it right, but when I do this by faith, okay, God, I do not feel like worshiping you. I'm, I don't understand what's going on in my life, but I'm gonna get on my knees and I'm gonna worship you anyway. That something changes in me. And there's a, there is often a sense of peace. It doesn't mean my problem is solved, but there, there is a moment where the bad news comes or the trial comes or you know, the bounce check happens or whatever it may be, there's this pivotal moment where you can choose to worship God or walk away. That's right. It is just this crucial time in your life and how you respond to that will determine how you heal from it, how you get free of it, how you overcome it. There's this moment in time and we... And, and I'm not saying we only get one chance, but for that particular trial and tribulation, you've got this moment to take a, the right path that will bring healing or you'll take the, the path of doubt and unbelief and discouragement and even anger at God. Yes. Right. Right. Why don't I just give up and start living that life? Yeah. And rather than try to be a good person anymore, I'll be a bad person and I'll live as wealthily as they do. Well, and that and that is a that is a response a lot of people have. They they give up on God, and I'm I'm telling you I'm amazed at how many people I went to Bible college with that are not serving the Lord. It stuns me. And breaks my heart, you know, because they knew God. They walked with the Lord. They worshiped God. But the, Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. And some seed falls on thorny ground. And the cares of life choke the, choke the seed. And the worries, it talks about the anxieties and worries that, and, and lusts of, the li- of life will choke that seed. Same with the, the seed on stony ground has no root. And so it can't handle those tribulations. And so that will test our faith. And 
The, but the, there, there is, it's never good to compare yourself with somebody else because we have an individual journey with us and God and he will lead us the way, the easiest way will come. He probably had an easier way for us, but he's bringing us the easiest way will come. Just think of the Israelites. They, it was like a 13-day trip, took 40 years because they had to go the roundabout way. God brought them the easiest way they could. He knew they'd grow weary of fighting. And so... You, you cannot compare your journey with someone else because it's an individual journey. Yes? Don't you also think that's part of uh, taking every thought captive? Yes. What, you know, what Paul tells us, right? You're exactly right. And, and here's something my sister was talking to me about this. At that moment, when you know the thoughts are going negative, you got to say, even sometimes verbally, stop. Because your mind's going there and, and you've got to take those thoughts captives before they get loose. Because once, I don't know about you, but I have worried my way into a sleepless night before. And just my mind went, I went there and I didn't stop it and it went. And so we, we all know what that's like. And so we've got to take those thoughts captive. And, you know, God is bringing us on this journey. And I do believe he has blessings for us and promises but he, Jesus also said there will be tribulation. And so, but you're not alone. I'd rather be in tribulation with God than in, a, you, know, you know, some kind of paradise without him. And, and so I want, I want us to be mindful of this. The next time you hear bad news, what are you going to do? You've got this moment where you can decide, I'm going to worship God or I'm going to worry myself to death. What am I going to do? And the habits were long in forming. They take a while to break. But you got to start sometime. Yes? So, there was a point in my life, I went to a county jail, didn't even worship God. And uh, I went to church, and I sat there, and I listened to the people worshiping. And I wasn't even worshiping, I was just, Mm -hmm. where even though I didn't know what was coming next and I didn't know why things were happening the way they were, it was going to be okay. It was just peace. Yeah. And it, it was just from being in the presence. You're exactly right. When the spirit, wherever the spirit is, there is freedom, the Bible says. And it's even greater when we enter in. I mean, we can sense the presence, you know, just by not entering in. But there's even more so when we do. And, and at the same time, we worship not so we can get peace. We worship because he's worthy. The peace is a side benefit, but that's not our goal. We worship because God is worthy to be worshipped. Yes. Wow. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, he, it sounds like he had the spirit of Job. He understood, you know, that we can worship in life and in death, and God still deserves the glory. And, and this is, now some may think, how could Job worship the God that took away his kids? Now let's look at this. Job could, wor- letter D, Job could worship God after these tragedies because worshiping God was his custom. See, Job worshiped all the time. He worshiped every day. And so it was easier for him to worship because that was what he always did. And so we need to create a habit of worship in our life. That that's not our last reaction, it's our first reaction because we worship all the time. And you can worship in your car, you know, don't bow down and uh, get on your face. But uh, we can worship in, in different areas of our life. You know, God's always worthy. So make it a practice, a habit, like brushing your teeth. Worship the Lord. Make that a habit. Because then when the trial comes, it's easier to worship the Lord in that trial because you you do it all the time. It's part of your life. We got to create good habits to break the bad habits. And you can't just break a bad habit. You've got to replace it with something good. And so I encourage you, worship the first thing in the morning. Wake up. And begin to worship the Lord. And throughout your day, worship the Lord. And when you can find a private time, get on your face before God and worship the Lord. Because he's worthy. And this side benefit is we will sense his presence and his peace. Yes. Yes. And, and in fact, that's a point I want to get to. Excellent insight. So Uh, Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7, come, let us bow down and worship. Same Hebrew word that was in Job. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This speaks of that habit of worship. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let it be a part of our practice because worship is a lifestyle. It's not just an act, it's a lifestyle. And the reason it is appropriate to worship is because worship is not just a reaction to what God has done, but a response to who he is. I've often used this distinction between praise and worship. Praise is is thanking God for what he's done. Worship is loving God for who he is, whether whether he does things or not. And he does. He does bless us, but we really need to come to that place of worship, not because we're expecting a return, but just because he's worthy. And, and, that, and it's just because of who he is. And worship is not conditional upon good times. God's always worthy, especially during the hard times. And so if you don't know what to do, then worship. You can never go wrong with praising the Lord and thanking God and, and worshiping him. And so this is what you were mentioning, letter E. Worship during crisis is the greatest expression of faith. One of the greatest expressions of, that you can show your faith to God is to worship in hard times. And look at Hebrews 11.36. Now we know Hebrews 11 is the is the passage on the the heroes of our faith. These people believed and God raised them from the dead and 
And then Hebrews 11, about halfway through, changes gears. And it talks about, here's people who died without getting the promise, and yet they still had faith. So we see this in Hebrews eleven thirty six. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword, James. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And this is the key. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. They didn't receive what they were praying for and believing for, but they never stopped believing anyway. And, how, and the reality is, once they passed from life to death, they did receive those promises. A lot of the promises, the best promises, are not in this life. They're in the next life. And so, for you to worship during hardship or at the first sign of tragedy is one of the greatest expressions of your faith in God. Because it, it seems so contrary to what we feel and, but, but we have to understand that our circumstances shouldn't hinder our worship. True worship does not depend upon any factor other than the attitude and the willingness of our heart. Letter F, worship isn't about a place of worship. It's all about an attitude of worship. And we see this in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. She says, where are we supposed to worship? On our mountain or, on your, or at the temple? They were locked into a place of worship. It's like a lot of people think church is a building. No, it's a people that inhabit a building. And we're the church. But in John 4, 21, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem place. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. For a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Letter G. God is not just seeking worship. He is seeking worshipers. And there's a difference. Worship can be occasional or it can be a practice. And God doesn't just want worship, he wants worshipers. He wants people that have the habit of worshiping him, especially in hard times. And so we see Job's first reaction is grief, that's normal. His second reaction blows my mind that he is willing to worship God. May we do the same. I wanna challenge you this week. And, and if, if you have an experience and maybe can share it next Wednesday, if you got bad news or ran out of gas, it doesn't have to be something tragic or terrible, and you made a conscious choice, I'm going to worship the Lord through this. And then tell us how it went. And so I want, I want you to practice this. Let's put, put God's word into practice, and let's plan this week. Every time something goes wrong, we're going, to worship or we're going to worship the Lord, and after a while, Satan's going to get tired of it and leave you alone.